Hey guys, this is Colin from Blackjack Apprenticeship, and I'm back after a bit of a hiatus with a somewhat of a mailbag uh, podcast episode here. I haven't put one out in a little bit, and I sort of feel bad, but I think I just burned myself out during the quarantine. I was putting out podcast videos, uh, chat rooms for the members, and as much as we could to just help people through that quarantine. Now we have been out of quarantine for a month and I've been doing boot camps and all that kind of stuff and have slacked on the new content, but uh, you know, that's life. So I guess all that to say, sorry, not sorry, but here's a new podcast episode for you guys. And I've, I've just been kind of collecting a handful of things that I've wanted to maybe elaborate on, and I thought that this might create a good opportunity for it. So it's going to be a hodgepodge of, of questions or emails I've gotten, or just things I feel like talking about, uh, all related, of course, to Advantage Play and Blackjack. So let's jump right into the first topic, which is uh, about obvious counting. So I got an email recently, and part of the email, he says, uh, this guy got together with some friends to deal some blackjack. He's been practicing by himself. This was the first time practicing with friends. He said that his friends all said it was really obvious to tell that he was counting. He would have, you know, a hard 19. It would take him 10 or 25 seconds to make sure that he had his running count updated before he would choose to stand, which, you know, should be a no-brainer, obvious decision. Um, he might have twos and still be updating the running count and then start trying to think through basic strategy, but he's updating the running count and trying to think through what to do. And his friends are like, dude, you know, this is this is obvious. Uh, the casinos are going to know exactly what you're doing. So, you know, I was thinking through this and there were a few things that came to mind as far as advice if this is your situation. First off, we've all been there. You know, I remember times just staring at a 20 against, you know, a dealer's seven or eight. And it's not that I'm wondering if there's some elaborate deviation. I just need a minute to think through what the heck is going on in my brain. Um, so my first advice is that getting faster at everything is going to help. Uh, start with basic strategy. You know, the more brainless, second nature, every basic strategy decision is, the easier it's going to be to count while playing basic strategy. I've actually been teaching my son basic strategy just because he's curious and it's our, I'm calling it our summer math program. And, you know, it. I could tell the amount of time it takes for him to think through a basic strategy decision. There's no way he's going to be able to add counting to it, even though he can count through a deck of cards also. So get basic strategy fast and mindless. But beyond just basic strategy, get your counting faster. Um, you know, I really think the goal should be to count through a deck in 25 seconds. And that doesn't mean flipping over one card at a time. It could be just, you know, thumbing through the deck, um, moving the cards one at a time with, with your thumb. I don't care how you do it. But regardless, you know, I know a lot of people say 30 seconds is the goal. And that's great. If you get to 30 seconds, that's great. But I guarantee you, if you get to 25 seconds, you will thank me for it. And if you can make basic strategy mindless, and you can count through a deck in 25 seconds, all you need is a bit of practice to get really fast at those two things at the same time. Counting was such a long time ago that I, I learned it, but there have been some other skills that I've worked on, and it's the same thing where I'm kind of starting the same place anybody that's learning counting is, where it's painful, it's slow, 
my brain hurts. And, and sometimes it can feel like I'm not getting any faster. There might be two or three days where I practice for an hour and I don't get any faster, but I do inevitably get faster as I continue working on it day after day after day. So that's my first advice is get faster at everything. My second advice is, you know, the reality is sometimes you just gotta stall. You just have to be okay stalling the table and looking like an idiot. Sometimes it's when you're playing and you you are, you're, you're having to update the running count, think through the true count, think through if there's a deviation and if the deviation is there yet, all that stuff, you have to do it at once and it might take more than a couple seconds to do it and you just gotta be okay with it. And I've talked before about with the church team, we had players that they really had a hard time with this, Cer- certain players, didn't feel okay stalling the table. They felt like the the dealer, the other players were all pressuring them. And so they would just make a decision even without thinking through things. So with those players, we forced them just to prove to themselves and to prove to us that they could do it. We'd make them stall the table for a minute, which is is really ridiculous. And and I I think we could have gotten the same point across making them stall it for 30 seconds. But when it's your playing decision and the dealer is saying like, sir, you have a 17, and we're saying, you know, we gave the signal to stall the table, you realize you really can just sit there and say, hold on, I need to think about it for as long as you want. That The dealer isn't allowed to move on until you've given a hand signal. And what, what again, what that does is it proves to you that you really are in control of the situation. And there are times where you just have to control the speed of the game to make the proper playing decisions. It's more important to make correct decisions than to play faster to look smooth and natural, though the goal is to look smooth and natural, play fast and make correct decisions. Another time you sometimes have to stall the table is if you're spotting. So if you're spotting for the big player, you get, you know, we'll say it gets to a true two and you don't wanna waste valuable cards in the time it's gonna take for the big player to get to your table, you know, that's when you learn that you just got to slow the game down. Maybe you got to ask, hey, what is insurance and exactly how does it work? And then they explain it. Oh, well, if the dealer has an ASUP, say, well, what if I want to buy insurance when the dealer doesn't have an ASUP? Can I do that? And then they explain more and say like, yeah, but how much How much can I can I bet $1,000 on insurance or, you know, whatever. You can ask about side bets or you could just say like, hey, guys, you know, my gal, she wants to go to a nice show. What's your guy's favorite place to go? You do that in between rounds and you have your money on your chips in the betting circle and the dealer can't deal the round until you let go of the money. Those are just stupid things that we've done to slow the game down. But to be able to stall is a valuable skill. And one other story I wanted to relate that I heard, I think within the last year, I don't want to say who it is, but it's a professional blackjack player I have an incredible amount of respect for. And uh, they were telling me about, they were doing a more advanced blackjack skill, but there was this time where they needed time to really process what had just happened um, to kind of lock it in. And apparently they just, they were playing heads up and said, hold on, and just stood up from the table, middle of the shoe, walked around the casino for like 30 seconds, then sat back down and started playing again. And it was it was a good example of an absolute professional doing what they needed to do to do their job right. And I, I love it and I think about that all the time when when I'm training people or or when I'm you know working on something myself and saying, you know, at the end of the day, I gotta control the game. I guess to to quickly 
you know, reiterate, the first thing you gotta do is get faster. Get faster at every skill and it'll make all, a lot of these problems go away. But secondly, you just gotta be okay being uncomfortable, slowing the table at times, uh, hopefully not often. Um, I think speed will, will take care of most of these problems. All right, so let's move on to the second topic, which is an email I got from one of our members who got intimidated into giving his ID at the cage. And I couldn't find the exact email, but I remember him saying, I know, Colin, you told me not to do it, but in the moment, I'm at the cage, they're demanding my ID, and I kind of panicked and just gave it to them. And I thought it was a good kind of teaching opportunity for anyone listening to just kind of talk through this situation. So, you know, this is assuming you don't want to give ID. If they're asking for ID at the cage, it could just be that there's a dollar amount threshold that they need ID. And I've had this, I mean, I've had this twice, I wanna say in the last year, where I'm playing unrated because, uh, you know, I haven't legally changed my name or anything, and I assume that I'm in any database they're gonna look me up in, but I'm going to cash out, and I'm not getting heat, but the dollar amount I'm cashing out, let's say it's $5,000 or whatever, they, they just uh, say they need my ID, and I just have to make a quick decision and say, do I care, you know? In, in both of these situations, I said, you know what? I don't care. I'm in whatever database they have, and I want to just get this cash. And so I gave them my ID, and it was absolutely fine. It was it, they didn't look me up. They just um, I I don't even know what what they did it for. Maybe just it's their internal policy for for an, an amount over five thousand or three thousand or whatever it is. But let's say you don't. There's another time where I was cashing out, uh, I don't know, maybe a year and a half ago, and they asked for my ID, and it was a place where I did not want them looking me up, and I knew why. I knew that they uh, use a certain database, and I knew it, it was gonna lead to more problems uh, than, than I wanted to deal with at the time, and so I just said, you know what? I don't have it with me, and uh, I, you know, I hadn't given them the chips yet, um, or or maybe I'd put them on the counter, but I hadn't slid them to them yet. And they said they need ID. And I said, you know what? Uh, I don't have it. I'll be back. And I just took my chips and I left. So I would say, here are your options. The first one, and the one that I would recommend, if at all possible, is just leave with the chips immediately. You can always come back later and have someone else or have someone else cash them for you. You know, if you can come back on a different shift and cash them when it's not for whatever reason, you know, if it's a dollar amount, you're you're probably gonna have the same problem. But you can come back and cash out two thousand, and come back the next day and cash out another two thousand. I helped a friend cash out his chips. I want to say it was seven or eight thousand, and I just I cashed out two, walked out, came back thirty minutes later, cashed out two more from a different cashier, and it wasn't the ten thousand dollar thing. It wasn't structuring or you know suspicious activity. I just cashed out two, came back, and it was absolutely no problem. I've had wife friends, sister-in-law, various people cash chips out for me. So that that can be another option. Um, I've done this for APs. I've had APs do this for me. Your second option is there might be another AP who would want to cash, would actually want the chips from you to play with them. So, you know, we've talked about this at various times, but it's not a bad idea if you show up at a casino and you have a few thousand dollars worth of chips to start out with. Uh, there are multiple reasons this can be valuable. One is you're not buying in and they're saying, who is this guy? You're just, you know, as far as they know, you were already playing or you were playing the day before or the week before or whatever. Um, another reason this can be valuable 
is if you don't want to buy in over $10,000, if you're able to start a session with $5,000, $7,000, something like that, you know, we're talking about you're not going to be worrying for fourteen or sixteen thousand dollars worth of play between the chips and buying in because a cash transaction report is when you've bought in ten thousand or cash out ten thousand. So there, there are plenty of APs that would say, "Hey, you know, uh, I'll buy those chips off of you," and maybe you give them, you know, one or two or three percent uh, off off the top or whatever to take those chips off you, or maybe they'll just do it because they know you're going to return the favor down the road. So that's another option. A third option is to decide if you want to put up a fight. It's not cool or really okay for casinos to just confiscate your chips, but it's something that happens. And I think when we were running the church team, we just kind of assumed that crooked casinos was part of the job. It was dealing with casinos that would do things that kind of went against our rights. And we just went with it. And I've been really inspired by Tommy Highland, um, Bobner session and and some other some other people to say you know that that's not okay we just kind of figured that's the way the world works but I have friends you know I can think of a BJ pro I don't I don't want to say his name but he told me this story a, a while back where he was at the cashier's cage and he had we'll say ninety six hundred dollars in chips and they said well we're gonna need your ID he said no you don't and they said well then we're gonna keep the chips he said no you're not I'm gonna stay here until you give me my money and and I'm not gonna give ID because you actually don't need it and he stayed there I want to say it was like 45 minutes that he just I don't know if it was friendly but he was firm but not you know he wasn't like cussing them out or anything he wasn't filming it he just said no you don't need my ID at the end of the day, 45 minutes later, they cash him out, they give him his money, and he he you know relayed the story to me just to say, look, sometimes it works to, to put up a fight, to stick up for yourself and say, no, I'm following the law, you're not. Uh, however, there are those cases where the casino violates your rights, and you have to really, you know, the fourth option is decide if you want to give up ID to get your cash and leave. Again, with the church team, this is kind of what not kind of, this is exactly what we told our players. We said, at the end of the day, get the cash. And so that meant all of our players had to be okay if the casino said, well, we're not cashing you out unless you give ID, that they had to just give ID. And, and it, it sucked, but we figured that's, you know, again, that's the way these crooked casinos work. So you can hire a lawyer if a casino won't give you your chips, but I would try to avoid it getting to that point by when you get to the cashier's cage, don't slide the chips over to them. You could stack them in front of you. And if they say, we're going to need ID, you can say, oh, you know what? I don't have it. I'll be back. And you can leave. Um, again, th those are your options. You can just try to leave cash out later or trade them to another AP for cash. Uh, you can decide if you want to put up a fight or if you want to say, screw it. I don't really care. I'm in every database already. That was kind of the story I gave. I knew I was in the databases. I didn't really care. If they look me up and say, hey, you're done here, I would rather, okay, great, get an updated picture of me for your databases. I, I, I'm all over the stupid internet um, and just get my cash and get out of there. Those are your options. But what I don't want you to do is be intimidated into doing something that's not what you wanted to do. So that was the email from this guy. He's like, I didn't want to give ID, but I felt intimidated. Don't let them intimidate you. You know, If they say we, we need ID, you could say, no, actually, you don't need ID. I'm leaving. Take your chips with you. Of course, it's a different story if they then <laughs> confiscate your chips. That's where you got to get, you know, gaming commission involved or, you know, we've got an entire list 
of lawyers around the country that you can call to defend you if a casino does something that they shouldn't. It's it's in our members area under tools. I think under the literature section, we have that list. So that's enough on this topic. Let's move on. Uh, a third thing I want to talk about is this uh, story of a hidden bankroll. So how this story goes is that one of our members had read a creative way of stashing his bankroll. I want to say it was $9,000. So he stashes this $9,000 in his kitchen in a normal-looking receptacle. I don't want to give the details. You can read about it on the forum if you have a membership. But uh, he, he doesn't tell his girlfriend about this. And apparently, without uh, telling him, which is not an odd thing to do, but she decides to kind of go on a cleaning spree and is cleaning out their kitchen and throws out said receptacle with $9,000 in it. Um, so the the story ends with a happy ending. He finds the money in the garbage and, you know, um, all's well that ends well. But I, I just thought, hey, this is a good opportunity to kind of talk about this. Um, you know, back in the day, I used to keep my money in the closet, kind of just up where I could reach in the corner of the closet kind of just loose. Um, it, I think at first I had it, I had this book that had a little hidden compartment and I, I used that at first, but it could really only hold maybe 10 or $20,000. And so then when I had 40 or 50 or $60,000, it was kind of just up in the closet. And lots of times I even forgot to lock the front door of our apartment. It is just horrifically stupid. And it is, I feel like, uh, fortuitous that I didn't have my bankroll stolen out of our apartment. There were known robberies that happened. I mean, once I found out that, you know, there were some robberies happening, I always remember to lock the door after that. But, and I really shouldn't have kept all that bankroll up in the closet. I should have invested the money into something much, much more secure, but I was young and stupid. Uh, I remember other people that I played with, they kept their money in the freezer or even like in a vacuum cleaner in kind of where you couldn't see it, just different things that are like, oh, no one's gonna look there. But those, in my advice, are all really dumb ideas. Um, and what I would strongly recommend, what became church team policy, what I did uh, you know, after like year one of playing blackjack is to get a bolted safe, something you can bolt uh, in your closet or you know somewhere inconspicuous, and it can be bolted either into the subfloor or into the, um, you know, the framing of, of the walls. And the, the other option is, I think some people, you can get these bags, I don't know what you call it, like a satchel that is knife-proof, tear-proof, and it actually has a lock built into it, and you can kind of lock it to something so that you could bring your, you know, bankroll with you on a trip and lock it to something that's bolted into the floors or whatever when you're, when you're on a trip, something like that. Basically, the, the idea is something that is not going to accidentally get thrown out or accidentally, or, or someone could stumble across it, you know? Um, so that, that's the first thing is get something like that. The second advice is if it's a significant amount of money, like enough money that you are going to lose sleep or uh, it's going to really affect your ability to continue as an advantage player. You, I wouldn't keep it all in one place. You know, let's say you've got twenty grand, and this is your bankroll. And if you lose it, you're you're not playing for the next year. Uh, well, 
I would keep enough that you need for your, you know, upcoming play, maybe five or even 10 grand, you know, somewhere like in a safe and then keep the other 10 somewhere completely separate, you know, whether it's in your bank account, whether it's in a safe deposit box, which I've heard that it's not legal to keep cash in a safe deposit box. I don't know. That's not my expertise. We used to keep over $100,000 in safe deposit. I think we kept a couple hundred thousand in safe deposit boxes at the bank before I heard that it was illegal. And even then, I, I, you know, I don't know. I didn't know that rule. I didn't really look into it. But that was, an, maybe that's an option. Maybe you have a separate safe in your car and you keep some of it there. I don't know. Just don't keep it all in one place if if it's really going to affect you if something happened. And our goal with the, the deal with the safe is that it's somewhat fireproof, somewhat, you know, waterproof, and that if a burglar was in your house for an hour, they're probably not going to be able to get to it. Of course, if they had like multiple days, they could find a way to get, get it out of there. But you just want to make it not as easy as a normal, uh, you know, kitchen receptacle that could get easily thrown out. My last bit of advice with this is don't let anybody know that you keep money at home. This was church team policy. If someone were to say like, oh, so what do you do with all that cash? You just, you know, keep it at home? That you don't say, yeah, man, I keep it in my, you know, freezer. Our policy was to say, oh no, of course I wouldn't keep my money at home. That would be too dangerous. Even though we did keep our money at home. The reason being, you just don't need the word being out there that you have money accessible in your house. And if you wanna say, hey, I thought you guys were the church team, well, we can debate the meaning of not giving false testimony against your, your neighbor or your brother. You know, that was the policy we came up with. As far as why, well, I've known a few APs that have been stolen. I mean, really, like, I can only think of a couple stories. Never happened in with the church team, but the one that comes to mind is a local AP that I knew back when we were playing, and he was very proud of his success at the tables, and he bragged about it at the casinos. And lo and behold, someone had followed him home and then waited for him to be gone and stole his entire bankroll. And, uh, you know, it just felt like, man, just not smart to talk about it. Just not smart for people to know, um, you know, we as APs, we're not getting a lot of glory for what we do. We don't want the casinos knowing that we have the upper hand. Don't let anybody know. Don't let pride be the downfall of your bankroll. So that's my advice there. I'm glad it all worked out well for our member. And, uh, you know, he's got a great story to tell. But from knowing people who have lost some chunk or all of their bankroll before, I uh, just want you guys to be smart about it. All right, let's move on. Kind of in a similar vein of protecting things, I want to talk about protecting your identity on social media. So where this came from, I just got a private message from one of our members, and, and he mentioned um, the a latest uh, recent Gambling with an Edge podcast with T. Dane. And I know T. Dane, he's, uh, he worked surveillance for years. He's spoken at boot camps in the past, but he doesn't do that anymore because he's been out of the game for a couple of years. But I mean, I listen to it. It's, it's actually a really good podcast. You should listen to the latest Gambling with an Edge. But in it, T. Dane says that they were able to put together the church team, which was the Blackjack team that I co-managed and, and managed for a number of years. They, they put us together because of MySpace. Um, and so this guy, 
uh, one of our members private messages me. He's like, is this true? And maybe you could talk about this. And the first thing I'd say is, I know you're laughing right now, but don't knock us. This was before any other social media. And if you were around in, let's say, 2005, 2004 through 2006, I mean, MySpace was pretty sweet back then. You could have your own background music when someone showed up to your MySpace page. You could have your own wallpaper or background image, you know, kind of customize it. And then you had this friends list. You got to choose how many friends you showed and who were your top friends. And, and uh, you know, I think with the, the people younger than me, maybe the high schoolers, there was drama over who would be in their friends list. So anyway, it, it was the Facebook before Facebook. It was before Twitter, before Instagram and Snapchat and TikTok and all those things. There was this thing called MySpace and we were all on it because it was like the wild west of social media. And, uh, you know, we just were not thinking that casinos would also be on MySpace or surveillance workers. And it was really, really dumb. All they had to do was when they would back off one of our players, you know, let's say they back off Ford Knowlton, who was on the church team, they could look at his friends list and see myself and Ben Crawford and Mark Treese and, you know, all these other people that were known high rollers and be like, oh, okay, all these guys are part of this team. Um, so incredibly dumb. Well, that's that's my embarrassing story, but let's move on to what you should do. And here's, here's my advice on what you should do about protecting your identity on social media. The first question is, do you even care? Like, do you care about protecting your ID? I know some people, they just don't care. Advantage play is something they're doing for a short period of time, and they feel like, whatever, if, a, if I get a couple more backoffs because of some really smart surveillance person that looks me up, uh, then that's fine with me. Now, that's not really the advice I would give most of you, but if you don't care, whatever, you know, just live your best life, I guess. Um, but if you do care, then the first thing you want to do is to set all of your personal accounts to private. If you're on Facebook, set it to private. If you're on Instagram, set it to private, all that stuff. But the second thing is be really cautious about who you accept friend requests from. Um, I don't accept any friend requests from someone that I either don't know, oh, I know who this is, or have, you know, mutual friends so that I say, oh, okay, uh, I maybe I haven't hung out with this person a bunch, but he's good friends with five other friends of mine. And so, yeah, this is someone I would want to connect with through social media. Like, I don't accept people unless I really know who they are and I know I want to accept a friend request from them or whatever you call it. I don't know, a follower or subscriber or something like that. Um, so, yeah, that's the first thing you can do to protect your account. Secondly, if you really want to share about your advantage play exploits, create an anonymous account for your AP friends. So if you're on Instagram, you know, create an anonymous account that is separate from your, you know, public profile or whatever. Um, and, you know, kind of going back to the bragging about how much money you're making at the casinos for your own safety, I wouldn't brag about where you are. Like, hey, I'm, you know, I'm a... Uh, at Pachanga crushing them, you know, for $50,000. I wouldn't brag about that stuff, like where you are, how much money you have. Um, because like I said, I know people that this has led to them getting getting robbed. It's just not, it's not smart. If you need to brag, you know, do it privately to people you know and trust or, you know, 
brag brag to your mom about it later, but I wouldn't brag on social media uh, because that's that's just asking uh, for trouble. So there's a little bit of social media advice. I might give more, except I'm just really terrible at social media. Um, I don't really post uh, hardly at all, and uh, I don't. Uh, it's just not a big deal to me. So I don't know a whole lot about it. I'm not on TikTok or Snapchat or any of those things. So moving on, I've got one. I think one more thing I want to talk about, and uh, I'll try to do another one of these soon. But the last thing I want to talk about today is what I would prioritize if I ran a blackjack team today. And the reason I'm sharing this is I think that there's going to be things, even if you have no intentions of being on a team, I think there's going to be things that you can glean for your own advantage play career um, and your own efforts to really maximize your, your profits as a card counter or advantage player. So to talk about what I'd prioritize today, I'll start with three things that I think we really had right. And then I'll get into, you know, four or five things that I would do differently. Um, so the first thing I think we really had right was camaraderie. In my opinion, and I'd, I'd be happy to hear from other people that have played on teams, but in my opinion, the teams that I've known that are really just about money tend to burn out. Uh, I've known a handful. I've even been on a team where it became not fun and was really just about the money and that was the beginning of the end. So we actually, on the church team, a lot of us really enjoyed each other. We enjoyed our regular meetings. We would hang out. We'd go see a movie or, or do a meal or something like that that had nothing to do with you know an official church team function. And I think that that really helped. Like we, I think a lot of players really cared for each other outside of Blackjack. Well, the reason that matters is because when when something's just about money, you know, one of my favorite authors, he talks about having multiple bottom lines. If if money is the only bottom line, I just don't think it's a very good motivator for long, you know? At some point you're like, well, the the money isn't worth whatever else, like the loneliness or the boredom or the stress or whatever. But when there's another bottom line like, oh, I've got these friends that are in it with me, it it becomes incredibly motivating to keep to keep doing this thing. But secondly, these are the people that when you are feeling discouraged or uh, stressed or a lack of motivation or whatever, those are the people you can reach out to, whether it's on a trip or um, anything like that. And it's the people that like you can spur them on when you know they're going on a trip and maybe them planning a trip is the motivation you you need. You know, I enjoy going on trips with other players because at the end of the day, we could like sh- swap a few war stories from the tables uh, we can, you know, figure out what food we want to enjoy together. We could talk about something that has nothing to do with casinos or blackjack, um, any, any number of things. And I would say that this, it, let's say you're a solo player, I'd say you, you still need camaraderie. I think the people that try to be absolute lone wolves, they burn themselves out. Uh, it, it tends to become just about money and it tends to become a little bit unhealthy so that's one thing I think we absolutely had right is that there was really strong camaraderie, and uh, I'm I'm really glad that that we had that. Um, I think that Ben was good at kind of creating a group of people, and I think that we just had the right group of people that were in it. So uh, that's number one. Number two, the another thing we had right is is that management had a lot of experience. So this is not to toot my own horn, but just to to realize that by the time we started the church team. We'd 
taken well over half a million dollars from casinos. I don't know about well over, but you know, at least half a million dollars from casinos. And we'd played from $2 tables where we're spreading up to, you know, two spots of 25 or 50, all the way up to high limit play, betting up to two spots of $2,000 um, in casinos. We'd flown around the country. We'd been backed off, flyered, won, lost, all sorts of things. We'd done team play, solo play. Um, and the vast majority of the lessons, even that I share in, in my book, The 21st Century Card Counter, are actually lessons that I learned from my time playing because that's where we were having all these experiences and trial and error and and sharing like, oh, this worked, this didn't work. And uh, some people, they become a new player, a, a new you know card counter advantage player. And they're like, oh, I'm going to start a team. And you know you might not have the experience where you can really add value for your players. Um, but between the experiences we had, we also got really good at training and, and managing people supporting them and and really adding value to them outside of what they could do on their own, um, that that really set our players up to have more success than if they would have done it on their own. So what does that have to do with you? Well, if you say, oh, I'm going to start a team, you got to make sure that you're able to add some value in some way, you know? Um, otherwise, if you're like, oh, I'm, I want to start a team, well, why? You know, is it just that you're good at collecting people? That might be good enough. But uh, I think part of our success was that that we we did have quite a bit of experience and we knew how to handle the crazy shit that comes your way as a high stakes blackjack player. So I think that was one thing we had, another thing we had right. And the third thing really is fearlessness. And I don't credit ourselves with this. I credit the teams we were inspired by, the Highlanders. Um, I don't know what they go by. I don't want to rat any teams out, but we'll call them the big team. Um and it's or Mossad or um, you know I don't want to I don't want to say anything that that they wouldn't want me to say. But there is a large team that Ben was involved with uh, briefly uh, before before we kind of went off on our own and and started playing. But these teams, the Highlanders, MIT team, and and the big team, they they were fearless. They did not. Uh, get intimidated by casinos, by backoffs, by being trespassed, by casino intimidation, any of that stuff. They were not afraid of heat. They were not, you know, using large amounts of cover. And that is a huge key to the success we had is it wasn't like, hey guys, let's be fearless. It was just assumed. It was like, that's how you do this job. You do this job not by using massive amounts of cover and you know, trying to avoid a back off. You do this job, you make money at this job by not being afraid of casinos, by putting the big bets out there, as Tommy Highland says, firing those bets out there uh, when when you have the advantage. And if, if we would have been a timid team, we would not have made much money. So I think that's definitely something we had right. And anyone that is interested in high stakes uh, advantage play, I recommend reading Josh Axelrad's book, Repeat Until Rich, he does as good of a job as anybody that I know at really kind of um, explaining the, the ethos they had the, of don't back yourself off, make the casino back you off. And I just think that that a lot of people that's, that want to make money at Blackjack need to hear that. Um, so let's move on to the things that I'd change. I think the first thing I would say, it's kind of two ideas in one, which is kind of this spirit of excellence combined with quality over quantity. So, you know, 
we felt like we had pretty high test out standards. Um, and we kind of did, but we also really felt like it would be difficult to say no to someone that wanted to join the team that was willing to put in hours at the casinos, you know, high stakes, blackjack play. It was hard to say no to them when they were getting close but weren't quite testing out. Uh, or they kind of got to a point where they tested out once, but they were struggling to pass their, you know, their retest. And I think, you know, it was a combination of we were young, um, we were optimistic, and we hadn't had much failure until we did. I mean, it, it all worked out in the end. We, Whenever we had failure, we learned from it, and we, we regrouped, and, and we got better. But, you know, I... If I were to start a team today, I would have what I call a spirit of excellence, which is rather than creating a, a culture in the team of, hey guys, you're going to have to reach this point where you can pass this daunting test out and it's going to be really hard and scary and you know you might have to test it again in six months, I'd really create a culture of we enjoy being excellent at what we do. It's not this scary, I've got to pass a test out. It's a hell yeah, I'm going to train till not only I pass the test out, but anyone on the team can ask me in any moment to get tested again, and I'm not going to be defensive. I'm going to be like, yeah, I want to prove to you that I can pass a test out. Like, do you think any, you know, elite athlete, LeBron James or, you know, Michael Jordan in, in his prime, or probably Michael Jordan today, any elite athlete, if you challenge them, they don't get defensive and, and get scared. They get fired up to prove to you that they're, you know, better than you think they are. And I don't think that's really, I think for a lot of athletes, it's about hubris. I don't think that's really my point. My point is that I would want to work with people that don't just want to reach the point where they can pass a test out, but where they want to prove to themselves and others that that they're excellent at what they do day in and day out. There is, there is really this kind of standard uh, or spirit of excellence in what they do because you guys know, hopefully you know, the edge is small, you know? Um, I, I want to say a third of the players on the church team did not make money. They broke even or lost a small amount. And these are people that passed a test out at some point. And again, maybe we lowered the bar for them to pass the test out. Maybe we were like, dang, they've been out, you know, from across the country trying to test out for four days. They're running out of time. They haven't passed a test out yet. I, but I think they're close enough. We'll, we'll say that they passed. Like that, that's not the way I would do things now. And that, so that goes to the second point of quality over quantity. That I think that we felt like more is always better. More players, more hours. But I would not say that at this point. Quality is more important. Quality of hours, quality of players is more important than quantity of hours or quantity of players. That we basically you know, let's say a third of the team was was dead weight, that they didn't contribute towards closing bankrolls. Maybe they made as much as they cost the team in, in wages and expenses, but that's not good enough. So I, I would rather have a leaner, meaner team of people that, you know, are have the availability, have the desire to be incredibly excellent at what they do. So what does this mean for you? Well, I would set my goal of not just being able to test out, uh, whether it's through our, you know, test out drill on Blackjack Apprenticeship, uh, or whether it's at a boot camp, or whether it's just having a friend, 
uh, AP friend test you out, I wouldn't set the goal of saying like, hey, I want to get to this point and oh, I did it. I'm relieved. I would set that as, okay, that's my first hurdle to becoming a professional blackjack player. My next hurdle is I want to pass it again and again and to, once I've tested out, to continue to train so that someone could test me out at any point. And I know, like, my friends that are pros, you know, the the Joe 748s or SD1s or, you know, Sassy Red or, or Spartan or Levi Mitch or, you know, Stan Podolock or any, any of the people that that I've interviewed um, on our podcast that that have come through our training, I know these people, they're like, bring it on. Yeah, I'll test out again because I wanna be excellent at what I do. Okay, the, the second thing I would do differently is have less ego as a team manager. So I'll, I'll keep this brief, but, and I, I don't wanna speak for anyone else that was involved in managing the church team, but I can't say for myself, at 26 or 27 years old, co-managing a million-dollar blackjack team, I definitely started to think I was hot stuff. And to kind of create, I, I don't know if I created it, but, but there felt, in hindsight, like there was a divide between management and players. Like management, we were the people that you only reach out if, if you absolutely need to or, you know, um, don't tell me that you just won or lost $20,000. I don't care. Um, players were the ones that went out there and played. And, you know, that was really dumb uh, for, for a couple reasons. You know, the way I see leadership now is that leaders aren't served by their employees or, or by the people they lead. Leaders actually serve those people because, at the end of the day, we all just have different skills or gifts that that we've developed or that we've been given. And really the goal of a healthy organization or team or whatever is to use those uh, skills and gifts to serve each other without, without ego, you know? So if I had to do over um, to run a team, my goal, if I'm managing it, is to serve those players. Now that doesn't mean I'm on call 24/7 because you know you just had a crazy shoe where you lost every hand or you won every hand. You know that's not the point. The point is, how do I not see myself as above them, but as supporting these people as they're supporting me, as we're encouraging each other? You know, and yeah, we have different roles, but it's it's not a it's not a hierarchy in in terms of like who's superior or whatever. I don't know if, if you would have asked me, I wouldn't have said, oh, I'm superior, but but I, I kind of think that was what was communicated. And I look back at that time and some of the players from the team are still very good friends. Like some of my best friends are people that were, were on that team and other people maybe were not even that close, but I have an incredible amount of respect. And if I could go back in time and see them more as, friends and peers, people to learn from, not just to, you know, to teach, uh, I think I would have actually been a, been better off myself. I think I could have learned a ton from these people uh, that happened to be players rather than management or whatever. All right, I'm going to move on. The next thing I would change has to do with investing. So with with the church team, there, there was no required investment you needed to make. And you got a little bit better cut if you invested, if you were a player on the team than if you weren't a player. But if I had to do over, I would strongly encourage, if not require, any player to invest. Because 
it's a different job when you have some skin in the game. Um, and well, there's two two reasons. One is it's a different job when you have skin in the game. When it's when it's like some of the money you're winning or losing is yours. But beyond that, it's really good for you as a player to be invested. It's going from getting paid for putting hours in at a casino to getting paid off of everybody's hours, your own hours and other players' hours. And you can really kind of uh, skyrocket your financial growth if you're investing. You know, to me, the perfect um, the perfect team would be a group of people, three, four, five people that all invest equally and play equally. That's never realistic or possible or rarely, but I would want to really encourage any of the players to invest uh, in ways that they could, whether that's taking a smaller cut as management or not having outside investors, whatever it is. The way we did it, we really had a bloated bankroll and it probably just cost, you know, it just meant money going to these outside investors that were like, you know, a player's cousin's friend who invested in the team. We started cutting those people out because the money really should have been going back to the team, the players uh, and management that were putting in the tough hours, you know, making this thing happen. These last two, what do they mean for you? Well, I don't know what your sphere of influence is, but my advice to you is don't see yourself as like better than the people that you have, that you lead or have influence over. You know, I learned from my kids. Uh, Yeah, I lead them, but I learned from them. And there are ways that they are better people than me. Um, And as far as investing, you know, if you're thinking about teaming up with other people, even if you're trying to decide whether you want to play with your own money or also take on a friend's money to play with, I would lean towards, you know, your own money. Or if you're teaming up with other people, everybody invests. Everybody has skin in the game. Everybody gets to then enjoy the fruits of your labor for the hard work that, that you have before you of, you know, taking casinos money. All right, last thing that I would change is networking. So when we were running the church team, again, I think there was this like, hey, we're 26, 27, 28 years old, running this, you know, million dollar team, taking half a million a year from casinos. You know, one year we took over, what was it, $1.5 million from casinos. I think we thought we didn't need other people and we were pretty awesome. Um and that was just dumb, young hubris. If I, it, well, my guess is if if we would have invested in networking like we could have, now that I've met people through the blackjack ball, now that I know, even just thinking about the people we knew locally that w- had different strengths to us, I think we could have won twice as much money, if not more. And that's that's hard to to think about, like, you know, we won three and a half million dollars. We could have won seven. I think if we would have had a higher standard for the team, we could have won 10, 10 million dollars. And it's okay, you know, no no regrets. But if I were to start a team now, I would absolutely invest in networking. And that doesn't mean just taking from other people. That means giving. That means saying, hey, how can I benefit these other advantage players? And are there ways that their skills can benefit me? That we knew a team of people, I think it was three or four guys, and they were local, and we would get, you know, beers and wings like once every six months, I would with them and just talk, talk shop. But these guys, they were brilliant programmers. They could analyze a side bet or something like that that we had no ability to do while we had, you know, 20 players and half a million to a million dollars. 
Like if we would have worked together and found a creative way to, you know, give them a cut for for analyzing, finding the game and, and us get a cut for playing it or, or funding it, we could have made a ton of money. That's just one example, you know? Since uh, winding down or ending the church team days, you know, I've met a lot of people I think we could have helped and benefited from over the years. And so here's here's my encouragement to you. Yeah, you have to learn how to master Card Kang, and you're probably not gonna just team up with every other AP out there. But the people I know that are doing the best and having the most success are people that have a strong network. Yeah, they have a support system like the camaraderie thing I was talking about, but also a good network of other people that are out there, you know. I get emails from people or text messages saying, hey, Colin, I found this. I can't play it, but maybe you can. And and maybe I can't play it, but I can tell a friend about it because if I can't take the money out of the casino, I definitely want to help a friend take it. And those people that are sharing info with me, they're the same people that I'm going to say, hey, I heard about this in your area and I, I don't have the time to fly out there, but maybe you can hit it up. So invest in that. You know, Don't start asking people for information when you're not at a place where you can add value, but you can be networking without just sharing information. You, know, you can be meeting people, um, hanging out. There was an awesome meetup with a group of BJA members in the Midwest recently, and uh, there was a forum thread after the fact, and they just had a great time just hanging out with other APs, and I thought it was super awesome. Now, you want to be safe and don't, you know, invite strangers over to your house, um, but, uh, but you know, they got to know each other through the forum, and they, they met up, and, you know, I'm just happy that that networking is happening. So those are the things I would do differently if I did a team. Um, I'm going to try to do another podcast soon, one of them on... Uh, some takeaways from the blackjack ball. And then I'm going to be interviewing Richard Munchkin again, which to me is you know, a huge honor that he would take the time to, to talk with me. I interviewed him eight years ago uh, at his house. Um, and it was a lot of fun. And uh, he, he said, I can, I can do it again. So those are some podcasts that'll be coming up. If you want to learn more about blackjack apprenticeship, you can check out the website where we have a membership and we have boot camps and We have an app and we have stuff like that that you could check out. And we've got free videos on YouTube and these free podcasts and then members only podcasts and uh, stuff like that. So I don't really care to sell this stuff. Just telling you what we've got. So hopefully this is valuable to you. If you have something that you think would be valuable for me to talk about in a podcast in a longer form than one of the videos, let me know. We have a ton of content already on the site. So I might not do it, but I just might. So you can share that with me, Colin at blackjackapprenticeship.com. And I will catch you guys next time. 